In our lives, we make countless choices in the pursuit of pleasure. We do things that make us feel good, like working in a specific job because it's rewarding or pays well, or we exercise or grab a chocolate bar when we're stressed. But problems with our ability to manage or maintain our pursuit of pleasure often lie at the root of many disorders, such as addiction and depression. In this episode of A Grey Matter, we hear from QBI researcher Dr. James Kesby, who explains what happens in the brain when we experience pleasure and what makes things addictive. James, in a nutshell, what are you studying here at QBI? Uh, my research is primarily focused on schizophrenia. So I'm interested in psychosis, which is um, obviously one of the, the more well-known symptoms of schizophrenia, but also some of the cognitive problems that are associated with the disorder, which we can't treat at the moment. Um, and my thoughts are they're actually more linked than we previously have thought, in that some of these cognitive problems could lead to psychosis and not the other way around. Um, and our treatments at the moment are just kind of stopgap at the end of that psychosis spectrum. Um, but hopefully if we can find ways to treat further upstream, maybe some of those cognitive problems, we might be able to prevent psychosis as well as fix those cognitive problems. So with regards to schizophrenia and psychosis, I know that you do a lot of work on the dopamine system of the brain. Can you explain um, what dopamine is and what role it plays in our brain? Well, obviously, our brain has a lot of different chemicals that it uses to message and signal to various regions uh, for different purposes, and dopamine is one of these uh, molecules. Um, like most things in the brain, it's, it's got a wide range of functions, but what we probably know it as a lot is our reward system, so uh, our anticipation of good things and bad things. Um, also, movement, coordination, those type of events, and, uh, and also cognitive function. Um, so it's, it's quite a, uh, in the brain, it's got quite a discrete pathway, so very limited, very heavy projections to certain brain regions, but it has a big global effect because of its interactions with other neurotransmitters in the brain. I want to focus specifically now on the brain's reward system. What happens in the brain when we experience something that's pleasurable? So there's a concert of events that, that occur. So some of those events, are some of those systems in place are just a, how rewarding is this? Do we feel pleasure or not? Other ones in the lead up to a pleasurable experience, the anticipation or the wanting or the motivation to get that. And then post that event, if we thought it was pleasurable or we expected it to be pleasurable, there's a whole range of systems that incorporate after that. So if we expect something to be tasty and it doesn't end up being very tasty, we have this, you know, uh, I suppose a downer after that, which is a reward expectation deficit because our, our system was primed to presume pleasure and then it wasn't receiving pleasure. Um, so there's all these systems in place that are important for how we will next, you know, we won't go back to that restaurant if it was a bad meal because we expected it and we've learnt that it isn't, so we don't go back, we don't do it again. So then within the brain, how does dopamine factor into this? So dopamine is, is critically important in uh, our drive to receive pleasure and also our expectation of when we will have a pleasurable experience. Um, so it's very important for learning based on pleasure and reward. So when you do something and something good happens, dopamine's critical in uh, processing that so that we try to do that more often. So, for example, um, you know, if you eat ice cream and I guess the pleasurable experience is the, the sweetness uh, yeah, to some extent. So the sweetness uh, and the taste obviously factors into it, but uh, a lot of experiences we've had previously with ice cream can also factor into that. And if you remember eating ice cream with your grandma and you had a good time with that and it's one of those memories you focused on uh, in a childhood or something, you're going to like ice cream maybe more so than someone else just because, you know, not because of the flavour itself. Okay. 
So it's a very, obviously, all your life experiences culminate to a point and then sort of reflect upon that experience. What determines the extent to which something, you know, whether it's shopping or ice cream or exercise is pleasurable in different people? Do we know why some people are, for example, sweet tooths compared to others? Uh, To some extent, um, obviously genetics play a role. We're all fundamentally slightly different. Uh, So our brain is wired differently and has a different uh, amount of certain neurotransmitters and receptors, and they combine to maybe give people some individual variants on how they respond to certain things. And again, then you've got the life experience, past experiences with something. Those type of events are going to affect that as well. So it's very tough to delineate Like if there's one specific factor. I'd say it's a range of factors, and the, the global outcome is that I like this more than that. You might like this other thing more than this, you know. And associated with pleasure, of course, is addiction. So what makes something addictive? Well, I suppose this is one of the big uh, conundrums in the field. Where do you define addiction? You know, there's always this debate over, uh, you know, technology and computer gaming and and various things are now considered you can have an addiction for them. Um, But classically, obviously, drugs, uh, recreational drugs are the, the main thing that people get addicted to. And I suppose it's easy to to understand that because they tend to increase reward systems and make you feel good, you want more, and then you start doing it to a level that's bad for you and for your friends and for your life in general. I guess because chemically these drugs are inducing a big release of dopamine within the brain. Yeah, yeah, um, among other things, but that's primarily the mechanism of action with most of these uh, drugs. All drugs of abuse tend to increase dopamine release no matter what systems they're actually acting upon. Um, so that's primarily where the dopamine and addiction kind of research came, came from originally. Um, but yeah, in terms of addiction, I suppose it starts off as a, a seeking of something you enjoy and that gives you positive feedback. And then for whatever reason, you, don't, uh, you can't level that feedback and you, you, keep, you keep driving to get more and more and more. And then it actually separates itself from that where it's not so much about the pleasurable response at all. It's, it's more just this programmed... Uh, drive to, to get this, even if you don't like doing it anymore. So I guess then if, if an addiction is, becomes beyond the point where it's pleasurable, what is the driver behind that behaviour continuing? So um, part of us re- having pleasurable experiences is so that we can learn and adapt to our external environment. Um, you know, we, we learn very well and we get rewards. Uh, it's called reinforcement learning. A positive reinforcement helps you accrue that information to then make a better choice next. And the same goes with, with everyday life. Uh, we do a lot of things in life, not because we necessarily enjoy them at that point, but we know that there's a good outcome later on. So delayed gratification. Yeah, to some extent. And even instant gratification, you know it's, you know it's good when you're doing it. You just don't enjoy doing that, that actual activity. Um, you know, you stop at a red light when you're driving, not because you want to stop, but because you know the outcome of going through that red light is probably going to be worse. Mm-hmm. So with addiction, instead of updating your choice based on the fact that you're not receiving any pleasurable experience from it, and, okay, I won't do that anymore, the brain starts to get sort of locked in that, that cycle. Um, so we call this sort of habit formation oftentimes your autopilot. Uh, when you're not thinking about something, you just tend to do it. Um, and, and it can be quite hard to stop those you know, subconscious programs. And one of the theories with addiction is that maybe our brain goes to a habit formation too soon or its actual ability to direct away from habit formation is impaired. Our sort of our goal directed where you adapt on the fly is impaired. So once once people have been using a drug for too long or doing something that they're they're addicted to, uh, in a sense, um, the the brain starts just seeking it regardless of what comes out of it. That makes sense, I guess, as to why in cognitive behavioural therapy mindfulness is used as a treatment strategy. 
Yeah, so, you know, relapse is, is very high in, in many uh, addictive scenarios, even when people have been quite good at not, at, you know, following all, all the treatments. And a lot of the cognitive behavioral therapy is to help deal with any stimulus that might remind you of that event. So, you know, if you are trying to be down a diet, when you see the McDonald's logo and you previously liked McDonald's, just that seeing that logo can spark, you know, appetite and hunger and a want. So you've got to learn to actively take control at that point and okay no I'm not going to go towards that and it's the same with drugs a lot of different stimuli or events that people associate with their good times drug taking then can form relapse cycles because um, they see that and then it automatically just switches back on um, and that's what a lot of that behavioral therapy is to try and overcome that and sort of redirect it away from habit towards more conscious thought and so you can control it. I guess the other side of pleasure is when it, and it's related to addiction is withdrawal. Can you tell us what happens in the brain when someone withdraws from something? Well, withdrawal is basically when you take away something that the brain's become dependent on. So in response to long-term drug use, the brain makes changes, partially because of the chemical drug itself, but also because the brain's trying to compensate. It's trying to, too much of this is being released. So I'm going to reduce some of the signaling stuff I have going on behind that in in an attempt to sort of balance things out. We call that homeostasis, and the brain's got a lot of redundancy systems involved to correct for these things. Unfortunately, what that means is that when you've been taking a drug for a long time and all these systems have changed, when you stop taking that drug, the brain isn't prepared for that outcome. So uh, oftentimes it's kind of the reverse of what you would see with the drug, with drugs of abuse you get increased dopamine you, you feel like uh, energized and, and feel good you take it away you feel lethargic and you don't feel good and you have trouble doing anything that makes you feel happy I suppose like rewarding and that's the withdrawal effect um, and then there's other obviously physical uh, problems associated with that you know the sickness and stuff associated with some drugs do we know why some people seem more predisposed to addiction than others? Do quote-unquote addictive personalities actually exist? Uh, genetically, there is uh, risk for addiction is kind of how you respond to the drug itself. So, you know, I remember a lecturer in undergrad would say that if everyone in the audience took some morphine, you know, roughly a third of you would say, oh, that was pretty good. I'll have another one. A third of you would say, oh, okay, you know, whatever, wasn't much. And a third of you wouldn't feel that good. It'd be, you know, just wouldn't feel that good in the stomach or something. So we all respond differently to uh, everything. And that, I suppose, primes primes you. If you don't like doing it, you're not going to do it a second time. If you do, maybe you do like, you know, you move ahead. So there's the genetics factor in that. And that's based on, I suppose, certain receptors or systems in the brain that are just wired to respond more so to something and less, less to something else. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to give something up, whether it's sugar or shopping or they're going on a diet? Are there things that people can do cognitively to help? Well, there's a few, there's a few things you can do. I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I'm not actually involved in cognitive behavioural therapy. But I think the key is you have to remain focused on paying extra attention to those, those cues that otherwise you might just react to without realising uh, in the hope that then you override this, this habit and that's what the cognitive behavioural therapy will be trying to do. Um, so I suppose when, uh, I think a good analogy for me is when you go to the United States and you drive on the wrong side of the road, even though you're used to driving and you can do it autopilot here, you have to remain really vigilant about where you are in your lane because you're used to sitting on the opposite side of the car. So it requires this extra, this extra focus and concentration that otherwise you would not have to do. Um, and that can be very tiring. So that's the problem, I suppose. You've got to try and limit your exposure to the things that drive this, uh, you know, whatever happens to be sugar or 
uh, drugs or anything. Limit your exposure when you are in an area where you could have exposure to stimuli associated with it. Remain vigilant on you know the task at hand, what you want, what you want to achieve. I want to touch on now something that you mentioned with respect to withdrawal, the fact that there's all of a sudden an absence of the amount of dopamine that the brain's gotten used to. Can you explain what happens when, not only when there's too little dopamine, but when there's too much? There's a few disorders that people would recognise. So Parkinson's disease is one, and that's where dopamine cells in the midbrain die um, before they should and in too large amounts. And they project to a specific region of the brain involved in motor coordination. So when enough of these cells die, you start seeing the motor symptoms. You get Parkinson's disease. Uh, Alternatively, depressive disorders uh, and also withdrawal is a decrease in dopamine um, levels in the reward pathway. So when you or I have ice cream, if I have less dopamine, in the system, I probably won't like it as much just by the way it is. Uh, And conversely, increased dopamine, uh, that's what drugs of recreation, a lot of them do, amphetamines are dopamine stimulants, uh, heavily associated with psychotic symptoms. If you have too much dopamine uh, release, you tend to have psychotic symptoms and sort of manic, manic events. And that's what we presume is happening in schizophrenia. And that's why we use agents that block dopamine um, signaling to treat psychotic symptoms. What are you currently working on in the lab with respect to dopamine and schizophrenia? I'm interested in one pathway uh, where dopamine is particularly important for both cognitive function and also what we think is involved in psychosis. So in the past, we used to think the whole brain had too much dopamine in schizophrenia. And so one of the pathways we thought was involved was a reward pathway because in in schizophrenia, they have reward-related deficits. They don't get the same feedback from positive and negative events as most people do. So it made sense that that was the pathway we're interested in. But now with new technologies, uh, we can actually look into the brain of people, uh, healthy controls and and people with schizophrenia, and see where the dopamine excess is. And it's not where we thought it was. It's located to a specific part of the brain called the associative stratum. And it's called that because it's very heavily connected with cognitive regions that we we use for all our uh, complex, I suppose, thinking and adapting to environmental changes. So we've been looking at the wrong part of the brain for a long time. And I think we have to start looking at that differently to to try and find solutions for cognitive and psychosis in schizophrenia. One of the cognitive abilities I'm particularly interested in, and this relates to addiction and schizophrenia, is, uh, as as I've mentioned before, goal-directed behavior. So when you have a choice between, say, two different outcomes or two different things, and they're going to have different outcomes, uh, what, what point do you change or do you make that choice? So the analogy I've used is food, generally. Um, you could have steak and salad or steak and ice cream, and you know you might like one more than the other, but if you have that over and over and over, eventually you're going to choose the opposite one because you're just sick of that. You know, We get bored with something that's the same all the time. Now, when these systems aren't working correctly, you might never switch away from the steak. Once you got on it, you just keep going. And obviously, that's, that's a problem with addiction. You just keep going down the same path, even though it's not rewarding anymore. But it's also a problem in uh, people with schizophrenia. They have a deficit in this, this behavior. And it's not because they like the steak more or less, or it's not because they don't start to like the steak less. It's because they're not making the correct decision with that information. So we're actually looking uh, at behavioral tests that we can use in, in patients and in animal models to try and understand exactly how that behavior works. And that's what we hope to then start using new treatments with. And so what do you hope the applications of your research are? 
In the long term, I hope maybe we can find some predictive capability for using behavioural tests to look at these, these regions of the brain and some of these behaviours and how, how they're impaired. Um, and then that might form a platform where we can start testing new therapeutics, uh, hopefully ones that will improve some cognitive symptoms as well as psychotic symptoms. And I think it's important because not everyone in schizophrenia has this elevated dopamine. Uh, hence, hence, not everyone responds to the treatment we currently have. But potentially, this brain region might still have problems from other systems. So if we can find a way to help that, that part out, we might, you know, might not be dopamine-based at all. It might just help everyone because we're fixing the, the core problem. That was QBI's Dr. James Kesby talking about pleasure, addiction, and the brain's reward pathways. You can find out more about his research at qbi.uq.edu.au. That's all for this episode. I'm Donna Liu, and our podcast is produced by Zoe McDonald. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, give us a review on iTunes, or let us know via Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening. Listening.